0: Section 29 of Mark Twain's Autobiography, Volume 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Monday, March 5, 1906. Dictated, March 15th. Mr. Clemens talks to the West Side Young Men's Christian Association in the Majestic Theatre. Patrick's funeral. Luncheon next day at the Hartford Club mr clemens meets eleven of his old friends they tell many stories mr twitchell's story on board the kanawha about richard crocker's father the mary ann story decoration day and the fiery major and mr twitchell's interrupted prayer yesterday in the afternoon i talked to the west side young men's christian association in the majestic theater the audience was to have been restricted to the membership or at least to the membership sex but i had asked for a couple of stage boxes and had invited friends of mine of both sexes to occupy them there was trouble out at the doors and i became afraid that these friends would not get in my secretary volunteered to go out and see if she could find them and rescue them from the crowd. She was a pretty small person for such a service, but maybe her lack of dimensions was in her favor rather than against it. She plowed her way through the incoming masculine wave and arrived outside, where she captured the friends and also had an adventure. Just as the police were closing the doors of the theater and announcing to the crowd that the place was full and no more could be admitted, a flushed and excited man crowded his way to the door and got as much as his nose in, but there the officer closed the door and the man was outside. He and my secretary were, for the moment, the center of attention, she because of her solitariness in that sea of masculinity, and he because he had been defeated before folks, a thing which we all enjoy, even when we are west-side young Christians, and ought to let on that we don't. The man looked down at my secretary, anybody can do that without standing on a chair, and he began pathetically. I say, began pathetically. The pathos of his manner and his words was confined to his beginning. He began on my secretary, then shifted to the crowd for a finish. He said, I have been a member of this West Side Young Men's Christian Association in good standing for seven years, and have always done the best I could, yet never once got any reward." He paused half an instant, shot a bitter glance at the closed door, and added with deep feeling, "'It's just my goddamned luck. I think it damaged my speech for my secretary. The speech was well enough, certainly better than the report of it in the papers, but in spite of her compliments I knew there was nothing in it so good as what she had heard outside, and by the delight which she exhibited in that outsider's eloquence I knew that she knew it. I will insert here a passage from the newspaper report because it refers to patrick definition of a gentleman mark twain went on to speak of the man who left ten thousand dollars to disseminate his definition of a gentleman he denied that he had ever defined one but said if he did he would include the mercifulness fidelity, and justice, the scripture read at the meeting spoke of. He produced a letter from William Dean Howells, and said, He writes he is just sixty-nine, but I have known him longer than that. I was born afraid of dying, not of getting old, he says. Well, I'm the other way. It's terrible getting old. You gradually lose your faculties and fascinations and become troublesome. People try to make you think you are not, but I know I'm troublesome. Then he says, No part of life is so enjoyable as the eighth decade. That's true. I've just turned it and I enjoy it very much. If old men were not so ridiculous, why didn't he speak for himself? But, he goes on, they are ridiculous, and they are ugly. I never saw a letter with so many errors in it. Ugly. I was never ugly in my life. Forty years ago, I was not so good-looking. A looking-glass then lasted me three months. Now I can wear it out in two days. You've been up in Hartford, burying poor old Patrick. I suppose he was old, too," says Mr. Howells. No, he was not old. Patrick came to us thirty-six years ago, a brisk, lithe young Irishman. He was as beautiful in his graces as he was in his spirit, and he was as honest a man as ever lived. For twenty-five years he was our coachman, and if I were going to describe a gentleman in detail, I would describe Patrick. At my own request I was his pallbearer with our old gardener, He drove me and my bride so long ago. As the little children came along, he drove them too. He was all the world to them, and for all in my house he had the same feelings of honor, honesty, and affection. He was sixty years old, ten years younger than I. Howells suggests he was old he was not old he had the same gracious and winning ways to the end patrick was a gentleman and to him i would apply the lines so may i be courteous to men faithful to friends true to my god a fragrance in the path i trod at the funeral i saw patrick's family i had seen no member of it for a good many years the children were men and women when i had seen them last they were little creatures so far as i could remember i had not seen them since as little chaps they joined with ours and with the children of the neighbors in celebrating christmas eve around a christmas tree in our house on which occasion Patrick came down the chimney, apparently, disguised as St. Nicholas, and performed the part to admiration of the little and the big alike. John, our old gardener, was a fellow pallbearer with me. The rest were Irish coachmen and laborers, old friends of Patrick. The cathedral was half-filled with people i spent the night at twitchell's house that night and at noon next day at the hartford club i met at a luncheon eleven of my oldest friends charlie clark editor of the current judge hammersley of the supreme court colonel cheney sam dunham twitchell reverend dr parker charles e perkins archie welsh a deal of pretty jolly reminiscing was done interspersed with mournings over beloved members of the old comradeship whose names have long ago been carved upon their gravestones several things were told on twichell illustrative of his wide catholicity of feeling and conduct and i was able to furnish something in this line myself three or four years ago when sir thomas lipton came over here to race for the america cup i was invited to go with mr rogers and a half a dozen other worldlings in mr rogers yacht the kanawha to see the race mr rogers is fond of twichell and wanted to invite him to go also, but was afraid to do it because he thought Twitchell would be uncomfortable among those worldlings. I said I didn't think that would be the case. I said Twitchell was chaplain in a fighting brigade all through the Civil War, and was necessarily familiar with about all the different kinds of worldlings that could be started. So Mr. Rogers told me, though with many misgivings, to invite him, and that he would do his best to see that the worldlings should modify their worldliness and pay proper respect and deference to Twitchell's cloth. When Twitchell and I arrived at the pier at eight in the morning, the launch was waiting for us. All the others were on board— The yacht was anchored out there, ready to sail. Twitchell and I went aboard and ascended to the little drawing-room on the upper deck. The door stood open, and as we approached, we heard hilarious laughter and talk proceeding from that place, and I recognized that the worldlings were having a worldly good time. But as Twitchell appeared in the door, all that hilarity ceased, as suddenly as if it had been shut off with an electric button, and the gay faces of the worldlings at once put on a most proper and impressive solemnity. The last word we had heard from these people was the name of Richard Crocker, the celebrated Tammany leader, all round Blatherskype and chief pillager of the municipal till. Twitchell shook hands all round and broke out with, I heard you mention Richard Crocker. I knew his father very well indeed. He was head teamster in our brigade in the Civil War, the Sickles Brigade, a fine man, as fine a man as a person would want to know. He was always splashed over with mud, of course, but that didn't matter. The man inside the muddy clothes was a whole man, and he was educated, and he was highly educated. He was a man who had read a great deal, and he was a Greek scholar, not a mere surface scholar, but a real one, used to read aloud from his Greek testament and when he hadn't it handy, he could recite from it from memory, and he did it well and with spirit. Presently I was delighted to see that every now and then he would come over of a Sunday morning and sit under the trees in our camp with our boys and listen to my ministrations. I couldn't refrain from introducing myself to him, that is i couldn't refrain from speaking to him about this and i said mr crocker i want to tell you what a pleasure it is to see you come and sit with my boys and listen to me for i know what it must cost you to do this and i want to express my admiration for a man who can put aside his religious prejudices and." manifest the breadth and tolerance that you have manifested." He flushed and said with eloquent emphasis, "'Mr. Twitchell, do you take me for a goddamn papist?' Mr. Rogers said to me aside, "'This relieves me from my burden of uneasiness.'" Twitchell, with his big heart, his wide sympathies, and his limitless benignities, and charities, and generosities, is the kind of person that people of all ages and both sexes fly to for consolation and help in time of trouble. He is always being levied upon by this kind of persons. Years ago, many years ago, A soft-headed young donkey who had been reared under Mr. Twitchell's spiritual ministrations sought a private interview, a very private interview, with him, and said, Mr. Twitchell, I wish you would give me some advice. It is a very important matter with me. It lies near my heart, and I want to proceed wisely." Now it is like this. I have been down to the Bermudas on the first vacation I have ever had in my life, and there I met a most charming young lady, native of that place, and I fell in love with her, Mr. Twitchell. I fell in love with her, oh, so deeply. Well, I can't describe it, Mr. Twitchell. I can't describe it. I have never had such feelings before, and they just consume me, they burn me up. When I got back here, I found I couldn't think of anybody but that girl. I wanted to write to her, but I was afraid. I was afraid. It seemed too bold. I ought to have taken advice, perhaps, but really I was not myself. I had to write. I couldn't help it. So I wrote to her. I wrote to her as guardedly as my feelings would allow. But I had the sense all the time that I was too bold. I was too bold. She wouldn't like it. I—well, sometimes I almost think maybe she would answer. BUT THEN THERE WOULD COME A COLDER WAVE, AND I WOULD SAY, NO, I SHALL NEVER HEAR FROM HER. SHE WILL BE OFFENDED. BUT AT LAST, MR. Twitchell, A LETTER HAS COME. I DON'T KNOW HOW TO CONTAIN MYSELF. I WANT TO WRITE AGAIN, BUT I MAY SPOIL IT. I MAY SPOIL IT, AND I WANT YOUR ADVICE. TELL ME IF I HAD BETTER VENTURE. Now, here she has written, here is her letter, Mr. Twitchell. She says this, she says, she says, You say in your letter you wish it could be your privilege to see me half your time. How would you like it? To see me all the time. What do you think of that, Mr. Twitchell? How does that strike you? Do you think she is not offended? Do you think that That indicates a sort of a shadowy leaning toward me. Do you think it, Mr. Twitchell? Could you say that? Well, Twitchell said, I would not like to be too sanguine. I would not like to commit myself too far. I would not like to put hopes into your mind which could fail of fruition. But— On the whole, on the whole, daring is a good thing in these cases. Sometimes daring, a bold front, will accomplish things that timidity would fail to accomplish. I think I would write her, guardedly, of course, but write her. Oh, Mr. Twitchell, oh, you don't know how happy you do make me. I'll write her right away, but I'll be guarded. I'll be careful, careful. Twitchell read the rest of the letter, saw that this girl was just simply throwing herself at this young fellow's head and was going to capture him by fair means or foul, but capture him. But he sent the young fellow away to write the guarded letter in due time he came with the girl's second letter and said mr twitchell will you read that now read that how does that strike you is she kind of leaning my way i wish you could say so mr twitchell you see there what she says she says you offer to send me a present of a ring i did it mr twitchell I declare it was a bold thing, but—but I couldn't help it. I did that intrepid thing, and that is what she says. You offer to send me a ring, but my father is going to take a little vacation excursion in the New England states, and he is going to let me go with him. If you should send the ring here, it might get lost.' We shall be in Hartford a day or two. Won't it be safer to wait till then? And you put it on my finger yourself? What do you think of that, Mr. Twitchell? How does it strike you? Is she leaning? Is she leaning? Well, Twitchell said, I don't know about that. I must not be intemperate. I must not say things too strongly for i might be making a mistake but i think i think on the whole i think she is leaning i do i think she is leaning oh mr twichell it does my heart so much good to hear you say that mr twichell if there was anything i could do to show my gratitude for those words well you see the condition I am in, and to have you say that, Twitchell said, now wait a minute, now uh, let's not make any mistake here. Don't you know that this is a most serious position? It can have the most serious results upon two lives. You know there is such a thing as a mere passing fancy that sets a person's soul on fire for the moment." that person thinks it is love, and that it is permanent love, that it is real love. Then he finds out, by and by, that it was but a momentary insane passion, and then perhaps he has committed himself for life, and he wishes he was out of that predicament. Now let us make sure of this thing. I believe that if you try and conduct yourself wisely and cautiously, I don't feel sure, but I believe that if you conduct yourself wisely and cautiously, you can beguile that girl into marrying you. Oh, Mr. Twitchell, I can't express—well, never mind expressing anything. What I am coming at is this let us make sure of our position. If this is real love, go ahead. If it is nothing but a passing fancy, drop it right here, for both your sakes. Now, tell me, is it real love? If it is real love, how do you arrive at that conclusion? Have you some way of proving to your entire satisfaction that this is real genuine lasting permanent love mr twichell i can tell you this you can judge for yourself from the time that i was a baby in the cradle up mr twichell i have had to sleep close to my mother with a door open between because I have always been subject to the most horrible nightmares, and when they break out, my mother has to come running from her bed and appease me and comfort me and pacify me. Now then, Mr. Twitchell, from the cradle up, whenever I got hit with those nightmare convulsions, I have always sung out, Mama, Mama, Mama. Now I sing out, Mary Ann, Mary Ann, Mary Ann. So they were married. They moved to the West, and we know nothing more about the romance. Fifteen or twenty years ago, Decoration Day happened to be more like the 4th of July for temperature than like the 30th of May. Twitchell was orator of the day. He pelted his great crowd of old Civil War soldiers for an hour in the biggest church in Hartford while they mourned and sweltered. Then they marched forth and joined the procession of other old soldiers and tramped through clouds of dust to the cemetery and began to distribute the flags and the flowers, a tiny flag and a small basket of flowers to each military grave. This industry went on and on and on, everybody breathing dust, for there was nothing else to breathe, everybody streaming with perspiration, everybody tired and wishing it was over. At last there was but one basket of flowers left, only one grave still undecorated. A fiery little major whose patience was all gone was shouting corporal Henry Jones company C 14th Connecticut Infantry no response nobody seemed to know where that corporal was buried the major raised his note a degree or two higher corporal Henry Jones company C 14th Connecticut Infantry DOESN'T ANYBODY KNOW WHERE THAT MAN IS BURIED? NO RESPONSE. ONCE, TWICE, THREE TIMES HE SHRIEKED AGAIN, WITH HIS TEMPER EVER RISING HIGHER AND HIGHER. CORPORAL HENRY JONES COMPANY C, 14TH CONNECTICUT INFANTRY, DOESN'T ANYBODY KNOW WHERE THAT MAN IS BURIED? NO RESPONSE. THEN HE SLAMMED THE BASKET OF FLOWERS ON THE GROUND AND SAID TO TWITCHELL, PROCEED WITH THE FINISH. THE CROWD MASSED THEMSELVES TOGETHER AROUND TWITCHELL WITH UNCOVERED HEADS. THE SILENCE AND SOLEMNITY INTERRUPTED ONLY BY SUBDUED SNEEZINGS, FOR THESE PEOPLE WERE BURIED IN THE dim CLOUD OF DUST. AFTER A PAUSE, TWITCHELL BEGAN AN IMPRESSIVE PRAYER making it brief to meet the exigencies of the occasion. In the middle of it he made a pause. The drummer thought he was through, and let fly a -a rub-a-dub-dub, and the little major stormed out, Stop that drum! Twitchell tried again. He got almost to the last word safely, when somebody trod on a dog and the dog let out a howl of anguish that could be heard beyond the frontier. The Major said, God damn that dog! And Twitchell said, Amen. End of Section 29 Monday, March fifth, nineteen 1906 Dictated March 15th